Our Old Testament reading is from Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 27, and can be found on page 94 in the Bibles we provide. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 17, and can be found on page 1029 in the Bibles we provide. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. sermon passage comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. We found on page 840 in the Bibles we provide. And when Jesus had crossed again to the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him as he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and who had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I even touch his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Father God, please take this, your word, and press it in deeply on our hearts. Let your spirit fall on us in such a way that you'd open up our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you have to say, because I have nothing worth saying, and you alone have the words of eternal life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are here last week, you'll know that we've started a series for the summer called Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. And the idea is to look at these specific passages of Jesus and how he dealt with those who were on the outskirts of society, those who were ostracized, those who were lonely, those who were outcasts, those who were marginalized, in order to see two things for us. One, to remember that we were once like that. We were once on the far outsides and Christ is the one who died for us and brought us close but also as an encouragement because we've been bought, we're no longer our own, we belong to him. So then how do we follow his example and love those who are unlovely? Go after those who are difficult and those who we find very far off, maybe even from our own culture and our own society. 
And it's important for us as always to kind of start with what's happening. What's the context of this passage? If you're here last week, you'll realize we're just picking up the next verse. We're just moving right through this story. And if you'll remember, the context before was Jesus was taking his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And there was a huge storm that rose up. Jesus sleeping in the boat stands up, says, peace be still, the sea goes calm. And the disciples are scared to death. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey? And as they cross over to the other side, they're encountered by a person who was um, a demoniac. That's someone who was, had many demons within. They were possessed by many demons and not sure what to do. The people had tried and tried at no avail. Comes to Jesus, Jesus casts out the demons. First, he talks to the man. He spends time with the man, casts the demons out and then sends him on his way, sends him to go and be his witness. And as the people come, the people beg Jesus to leave. They didn't want him anymore. They didn't want to worship him. They didn't, weren't in awe of his power. They were scared of Jesus. So they begged Jesus to go. And Jesus doesn't stay any place he's not welcome. So Jesus gets his disciples back in the boat and he's crossing back over the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets there, there's a crowd waiting for him. Not a crowd waiting to shoo him off or to beg him away, but a crowd longing for Jesus, longing for his healing, longing for his teaching. A large crowd, we're told. And as we see Jesus in the midst of this crowd, we're gonna have two folks who are gonna stick out above the rest. Two folks that we're gonna concentrate a little bit of time on today to see how Jesus interacted with them, how Jesus saw them, and in both ways, how Jesus loved them. So for the kids that are here today, here's your challenge for today. I want you to focus really hard on what Jesus says and what Jesus does. This is a pretty small story. There's not a lot that Jesus says, but every word is super important and everything he does is super important. So I want y'all to be thinking about that and focus on that. So let's start with our first person. It's a guy named Jairus. We're told A, that he's got a name and we're told his name. And we're told that he was a ruler in the synagogue. What that tells us is that he was a big deal. He had an important part of the society of that day, most likely well-respected, most likely wealthy. We see how quickly he finds his way through the crowd to Jesus. It's as if they part when they see him. And the fact that we're given his name means that most of the people around would have known who Jairus was. But because he's the ruler of the synagogue, his job was to make sure that the building was well-maintained and make sure that there was worship and that the worship was right and well done. But what's so interesting is while there's so many who were rulers of the synagogue and religious leaders at this time who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, This man, this religious leader, fights through the crowd to fall at Jesus's feet. To show that Jesus has power. He has a hope and a faith in something that Christ can do for him. And he says, it's my little girl. My little girl's about to die. But Jesus, I believe if you touch her, she'll be made well. That is his hope. That is his faith. And what's so interesting is what Jesus doesn't do. Often when people come to Jesus for these kind of situations, Jesus gives kind of a mini lesson, typically on faith. Do you believe I'm able to do this? Well, this is fine. Everything's gonna be okay. Do you trust me? Do you trust who I am and what I'm gonna do? Jesus doesn't do any of this here. Jesus immediately leaves with Jairus. It shows the importance of this situation, the time-sensitive nature of this little girl and her disease that immediately Jesus goes with him. And that's exactly what the crowd would expect. Someone of Jairus's 
position and power, of course, Jesus is going to go with him. If he's going to help anybody, he's going to help this guy. And then we find our other character in the midst of the crowd, because as Jesus goes, it says that he is engulfed by the crowd. It's like people on all sides. And, you know, I don't know how you feel about crowds. I hate crowds. I'm a little claustrophobic by that meaning. I'm really claustrophobic and I I don't have no patience. So claustrophobia and impatience in a crowd is like terrible. Like I remember the old days when Tennessee was good at football and like, there's like 10,000, like hundred thousand people would leave. And you're like, you know, I remember we went to the game and we beat Florida in 1998 and everybody's cheering. And I'm just like, I just want to go home. Just let me out of here, please. That's how I feel about a crowd. This is what's happening to Jesus. They are pressing him on every side. Every step is complicated and difficult. But in the midst of this big, great crowd, there's a woman. We're not told her name. We're not told her position. What we're told is she has a disease. That's all that we know about her. Contrasting that to Jairus, this woman with this disease, What we know of the little things is that she had been bleeding for 12 years, constant bleeding. That means very difficult life for her. And this was something that was common in this day and was really hard to do anything about. The Talmud who kind of had the the traditions of that day for the Jewish people had more than 12 different remedies for this. Some of it was stuff you take and some of the stuff you put on. One of them, which again, I've read them, they're crazy. One of them is that you have to carry around the ashes of an ostrich egg. And if you do that long enough, you'll be healed. I did not know there were that many ostriches in like the Middle East at that time, who knows? But they had all these different ways to take care of it. And most of the time it didn't help. And so that's one part of it. But the worst part is she's unclean. For all of you that wondered why in the world we read the awkward passage from Leviticus this morning, I saw you. Because that is the worst any congregation has ever done. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Like, thanks be to God. Like, what are we talking about? (laughs) My first hour reader, who was a man, by the way, which made that so much more fun. Sorry, Kelly, but wow. He texted me this morning and said, dude, you're totally messing with me, right? This is not the passage, right? Like, it's totally a joke. Like, you're just, I was like, no, it really is. He's like, I can't wait to see how you tie this in. This was the law she lived under. Because she had this flow of blood for 12 years, she was labeled unclean by the priests and everything and everyone she touched was also unclean. Every place she sat, every place she lied down, every place she went, every piece of clothing she wore, every person accidentally touched her or bumped her made themselves unclean. And in this society, when you're unclean, You are set apart. You are alienated in the most negative way possible. She was not allowed to go to the synagogue and worship because it would make it unclean. She would not be allowed to spend time with her friends and family because they would become unclean and have to go through the week-long rites of purification. She was utterly alone, ostracized, sent off, alienated from everything she was and everything she knew for 12 years. The worst I was ever sick was two weeks and it felt like forever. 
but I think we don't understand. We read through the Bible, and go, hey, I'm sick for 12 years and we move on. We need context, okay? If you are less than 12 years old, raise your hand. Yep, mm-hmm. None of them existed, okay? In 12 years, 12 years ago. If those are her seniors in high school who just graduated, you were in kindergarten, if you can think back to that. You need better context. In 2007, George W. Bush was the president of the United States and we sent 20,000 troops into Iraq. Context. Barry Bonds set the home run record, depending upon how you feel about him and just that's awkward, but just he set the home run record. The very first iPhone was released 12 years ago. More context to understand. Tennessee won 10 games in football 12 years ago. I knew there'd be something that would catch you where you were. We won the East and won 10 games. How long ago does that feel? 12 years. She dealt with this every single day. And at this time, in this culture, in this society, if you were unclean, it was all about the speculation of why. What was your sin? What did you do? She lived under the oppressive weight of that every day for 12 years. And because of that, she wants to do whatever it takes to get rid of it. Says that she suffered under many doctors during this whole time. She went to anybody and everybody. If you had a cure, if you had an idea of what might work, she'd do it. There's no place she wouldn't go. There's nothing she wouldn't try. But in the end, they filled her head with hope. They filled her body with all this folk medicine. And the only thing that was relieved was her money. And in the end, she got worse. She was on the great quest, trying to make her life make sense. She was alienated away, far off, cast off. And in her heart and her desire, I want to be brought close. And she went after everything the world had to offer. And how often is that us? Maybe your quest isn't for health, but maybe your quest is for significance. Your quest is for acceptance. Your quest is for the things you think this world will offer. I wanna be important. I wanna matter. I wanna have a purpose. I want people to love me. I wanna be respected. I wanna be known. And our great quest, we follow and go after all of these things with all of our energy as hard as we can. And like her, you know what we end up with? Emptiness. No matter what we try, no matter what we go after, in the end, none of it works. None of it satisfies. And in the end, we think it's no big deal. Like, oh, no harm, no foul. We tried this, it didn't work. What happened to her? She got worse. We don't realize the things that we go after with our hearts, with our minds, with who we are, those things of the world that do not satisfy often make us worse. Make us feel worse about ourselves see ourselves in a worse light, fill us with guilt and shame over the things we've said and the things we've done. She tried everything and nothing worked. She just got worse. But she had heard of Jesus. We're not told exactly what she had heard, but she had heard of Jesus. And we can infer by what she does what she had heard because she decides at that moment, I am not gonna let anything keep me from him. 
He's a physician who charges no money. Since I have no money, this is good news. This is a physician who doesn't want anything from me. But this is also one who touches the leper. This is also one who sends out the demons. This is also the one who brought someone back from the dead. This is one who touches the untouchable and cures the incurables like me. She has this moment of hope. There is one. I'm not alone. Maybe there's a chance. Once she gets to the end of herself and the end of her resources, she goes after all that is left, which is Christ. And she goes to this massive crowd. You know, in her mind, she hopes she shows up and it's just Jesus by himself. But this huge crowd of people and what she's supposed to do, we're told in culture at that time, is shout unclean, unclean at every step so people wouldn't accidentally touch her. But she knows if she does that, the crowd is gonna disperse and they're gonna yell at her and they're gonna get rid of her. She's never gonna get to Jesus. She, she begins working her way through the crowd. And it says that she said, if I can only touch his clothes. Now, a little Greek lesson that probably nobody wants, but you're gonna get anyway. This is not just a normal past tense. This is the imperfect tense, which means that it is a repeated action over and over again. So this is what she was doing. She's walking through the crowd. If only I can touch Jesus' clothes. If only I can touch Jesus. If only I can touch over and over and over again. One of my favorite stories as a kid growing up was the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Her act of faith is if I just touch him. That's all I have to do is touch, not even him. If I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Because that's what faith is. We think faith is right knowledge, right belief. If I believe the right things, that's faith. No, faith is right belief put into action. She believes that Jesus can heal. She's like, I'm gonna go touch him. It's like for me with this podium, I can say, I believe it's gonna hold me up, but until I, if I might, this thing's gonna tip over, it's gonna be awesome. But I lean on it, that's faith. Faith is that I trust that it can hold about this much of my weight. She was showing her faith because she would not let anyone stop her. She's going through the crowd. Everyone she touches is unclean. And yet she reaches out and says, she touches his robe and immediately she was healed. There was no like, oh, we'll see for later. Immediately, she felt it within herself that she was healed. And the word for this kind of hurt that her blood drew up was exactly from Leviticus 12, which was the purification rites, which was she's now clean. It's not just you're healed and now you've got to wait for a week. Jesus had the ability to heal her right then and make her completely clean, completely okay. The beauty of that moment of her reaching out to touch him in the midst of this crowd. She shows her faith in action to him. Now, the question for us this morning, what's Jesus gonna do about it? We've got three points and they're really fast. You're thinking, oh my gosh, we're never gonna get out of here. I get it. Jesus stops, Jesus searches, Jesus saves. Jesus stops. Remember, what is he doing? He's on an important mission for an important person. He is gonna go heal a little girl who's about to die of this guy named Jairus. 
The assumption would be is that Jesus kind of feels like, oh, that girl's healed. That's awesome. Congratulations. And keeps moving, keeps going. He's got something important to do. Jesus stops. It's as if he was yanked back by her faith, stops right there in his tracks because she thinks I'm not worthy to even be in his presence. I'm not worthy of his time. I'm not worthy of his view. I'm not, and Jesus stops to say, you are worthy. This was so convicting for me this week because how many people am I too busy for? Because I'm busy doing something else important in my mind. How many people just need a touch, just need a smile, just need a kind word, and I just don't have the time for them? It breaks my heart to think of the opportunities I've missed because I'm busy doing something. Jesus refused to be too busy for those in need. He stopped right there because he knew she needed more than just to be healed. So he searches, he starts looking for, he asks this question. I love, if you ever wonder, how do I know the Bible's true? These are some of the instances. Because why would the disciples tell this story on themselves? It makes them look just funny and dumb at the same time. But Jesus goes, who touched me? And the disciples act exactly how I would in that circumstance. If I was there, I would be sarcastic Andrew to Jesus. I'm just gonna be honest. I'd be like, "Um, I did, Peter did, Thomas did, Andrew did. Those 10 people, I don't even know who they are. They touched you, these people. Everyone's touched you, Jesus. We're in a crowd. Everyone's here. It's really tight spaces, having a hard time walking. What do you mean who touched you? And that's the question they ask. You're like, you see the crowd? Who touched you? Everybody. But Jesus knew something different. This wasn't a touch. There was a crowd of people gathered around Jesus just to see something awesome happen. And there was one woman who went to Jesus to be healed. And it tells us he felt the power. She touched him. He feels the power come out of him, which tells us that every time Jesus healed someone, it cost him something. But her touch of faith meant something. And so he stops and he's looking for her. This look is, looks penetratingly, like looking deep into the heart and soul of someone. And he's Jesus. He knows who she is. He knows where she is. But he's giving her the opportunity to come because there is more to do for you than just be healed in this moment. But Jesus stops and looks. Jesus stops and waits. He's not going anywhere until she comes. Now, imagine how awkward this is for Jairus and the crowd. Uh, Jesus, um, daughter, she's dying. It was like, if we could keep, keep it moving, keep going a little bit, please. That'd be great. I mean, I'm important. I'm kind of a big deal. I don't know if you know, ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. In this action, Jesus says, this nameless outcast of a woman is more important than Jairus and more important even than his daughter in this moment. He is gonna stop from saving a life to save a soul. He's gonna stop from saving a life to save a soul. So finally, Jesus saves her. 
He's been searching for her and she responds. She knows the question. She heard it. She sees him looking and she comes. It says she comes with fear and trembling. What does she have to fear? She's been ostracized by everyone else in her life. She's been labeled unclean by the priest. She's been labeled uncurable by the doctors. So she's about to come and have to admit to all these people that I made you all unclean. And worse than that, she's afraid that she's gonna go to Jesus and he's gonna send her away too. One more rejection, one more place, one more difficulty, one more confirmation that I am not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'll never be. And it says she told everything. She gave this testimony of faith. We assume everything means this story. It could have been her whole life. Everything that ever happened to her. But she definitely says, I heard about Jesus. I was sick. I was cast off. I was by myself. I was alone. And I believed that Jesus could heal me. So I came and touched him. And after her testimony of faith, Jesus says to her, daughter, it is the only place in all the gospels that Jesus ever addresses somebody with that name. Daughter, you who have had no family for 12 years, you who have felt off on by your own, completely alone, alienated, ostracized, no, you're my daughter. You're part of my family. And can you imagine what it would sound like for her to hear those words? It's the only time he ever says it. It's why we looked at our passage in Revelation that we who are in Christ have this hope one day that we will stand before him and that he will give each and every one of us a white stone. And it says it has a name on it known only to you and to Jesus. We think of Jesus as saving us. Jesus saves you individually, personally, lovingly. When he came and found you wherever you were, when you were off running after everything else in the world to satisfy you, he came to you and he called you. Maybe he called you by your name. Maybe he called you and called you son or daughter or beloved. Whatever that may be, there was this personal moment where Christ calls out to us as individuals, because he loves us and how we're made as individuals. And we have the hope that one day when we get to heaven, he will give us this gift that's just ours. The creator of the heavens and the earth has a name for you that no one else has and no one else knows. He loves you that intimately and that much. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And faith was the key to this whole thing. Her faith, her testimony, her faith, her reaching out. It reminds us so often how miracles require this faith. Jesus would say, do you believe that I'm able to do this before he would heal someone? We find when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples couldn't cast out demons. He says, these only come out by faith and prayer. And in the very next chapter, Mark chapter six, he's gonna go to a village and be able to do very few miracles and have to leave because the people had no faith. Jesus, the son of God, required in some ways faith. 
the faith that we have, as small as it may be, if all we can say is if I just touch his robe, with Christ, even the smallest amount of faith, which is a gift from him, has power. But it has more power than you think. The word that says heals, your faith has healed you, 85% of the New Testament, that word is saved. It's saved. Even later when he says, you go and be healed, it's a completely different word. Jesus says to her, you're not just healed physically, you're healed spiritually. I've made you new. You're part of my family. It's why I called you daughter. You trusted, you believed, you had faith, and now you're a new creation. You are no longer alienated and cast off and cut off, but I have brought you close because I have the power to do that because I love you enough to do that. Your faith has saved you. The old is gone, the new has come. You're new. And then he tells her to go. It's what he does for us. Once he transforms our lives, he tells us to go. And he says, go in peace. This idea of peace is this word shalom we use often. It's about wholeness. It's about fullness of life and perfection. It's way more than just a little piece. But then he says, go and be healed. What he's saying is go and be who you are. I have made you full. I have made you whole. I have made you well. Now go live out of that. Go live as my daughter. Go live as my child. Go reflect me in all that you say and all that you do. Go and be clean because I have cleansed you. Go as my child because I've made you mine. It's this beautiful picture for us of what he calls for us. And as we look at this passage, that's what we need to see. This was us off by ourselves, alienated, alone, scared, worried, unclean, labeled by the world labeled by our sin because her biggest problem wasn't her bleeding, it was her sin. And it's same for you and me. And Christ stops to hear from you. He searches after you that he may save you, that he may send you that we have been cast off, gone after so many things. And yet Christ is the one through his death, through his resurrection, who's brought us close and gives us purpose and meaning. All the things we've looked for our whole lives, Christ provides because he's all that we need. And then he calls us to go and do likewise, to go and do the same. Um, I was always astonished by Mother Teresa and just her work um, in Calcutta in the slums and just amongst the, for 68 years to give her entire life with the lowest of the low of society. The most outcast, the most poor with people with leprosy, people with AIDS, people that no one would touch, no one would love. She loved them. And you and I are surrounded by people who need that kind of love and that kind of hope. And it feels overwhelming to know all the need that is out there. But she said one thing, she said lots of things, but one thing I think is really helpful for us today. Not all of us can do great things, but all of us can do small things with great love. You and I this week are gonna have opportunities to do great 
do small things with great love because Christ loved you enough to seek after you. He loved you enough to make you his own and he loves you enough to empower you to be his disciples, to be his hands and feet. So my challenge to us this week to look for opportunities like this, people like this on the outskirts of society who simply need small things done with great love.